sunflowerofpeace.com. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. This is one of over 700 programs that we've had since the pandemic began over two years ago, um, where we bring to you uh, the programs that we have at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco for years and years and years, 120 years almost, um, but live streamed and online so that you can watch them in the comfort of your home because people are still not leaving their homes for these kind of events that much. We do have a live audience here today, though, and I'd like to welcome them, plus those of you who are going to watch live stream or online later on YouTube. So today's uh, topic uh, is more confidence than you can imagine. Now, basically, we find it very, very difficult to be confident that we're living life correctly because we really don't know what life is. Makes it difficult. There's a lot of questions about it. Why are we here? You know, what are we doing? All the usual big questions. And those huge metaphysical questions are often the thing that people try to answer. We're going to ignore those tonight, more or less, uh, in order to be confident, because uh, there's a way around it. When the usual way around it is not the way I, I take. But the usual way around it is to find some explanation of life that somebody says, that says, this is perfect, and just explain it. We, we, we can't explain it all to you. We can explain lots of it to you, but parts of it are a mystery, and so you just accept it on faith, and that faith gives you confidence that you're living life correctly. We'll go into something about that a little bit later. Uh, but I don't think that that's necessary in order to have confidence that we're living life well. Because what we really need is an understanding of our personalities. Not, not a metaphysical understanding of the entire universe, uh, but we need to understand our personalities. And those personalities have patterns to them. And those patterns are what I try to explain. And when you explain those patterns, you can see that there's something there that we can all kind of learn from, understand, and live life well just based on those patterns. And whatever the metaphysical reality turns out to be, um, it shouldn't make much difference about how well you lived if you understand the patterns of your personality. So the first thing that I'd like to talk about is there are people who've had extreme confidence. Lots of people. But some of them have had even more extreme confidence than, than that. I mean, to be able to stand up and, and, and uh, tell everybody in Athens, as Socrates did, um, that they all don't understand what they're doing. Uh, it, it, it takes a certain amount of confidence. It, you also have to have a pretty thick hide, uh, which he did. But 
uh, the reason that I use uh, this death of Socrates picture for this is because he's known for his confidence in being able to ask questions of any expert on any subject and end up usually making the expert uh, lose their way. Lose their way in one way or another. Now, where did he get this confidence from? He wasn't born with it. He got his confidence actually from knowing how low the standard is. There's a story about him which is telling. Um, Somebody from Athens was at the Delphic Oracle, and the Delphic priestess said to him, that the wisest man in Athens is a guy named Socrates. And this guy happened to know Socrates, and he went back and said, you know, Socrates, this was well before Socrates was very famous, Socrates, you know, the Delphic Oracle is saying that you're the wisest man in Athens. And Socrates said, that's ridiculous, it can't possibly be true. And the man said, how can you disagree with the Delphic Oracle? Because the Delphic Oracle is, well, it's the Oracle. So, Socrates thought about it for a long time, actually, before he came up with his conclusion. It took him decades. But his conclusion was that everybody he'd met thought that they knew what they were doing, thought that they knew about life or about their political issues or about their art. But nobody really did understand. And he figured out he was the first one who knew that he didn't know, and maybe that's what wisdom was. And that's where he got his confidence from because he figured out he was the only one who knew, who knew that they didn't know. So that's a very low standard, but it just gives us an idea about where confidence comes from. Confidence does not come from some uh, perfection, reaching some kind of perfection. It comes from exceeding a standard. Whatever the standard is, if you exceed it, you become confident. If you perceive yourself as exceeding it, that we'll get to in a little bit later. But I'll give another example. Aristotle. Um, um, Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great took a relatively small army and went and conquered half the known world at the time, all before he was 35 years old. Where did he get that confidence from? Well, maybe Aristotle told him the story I just told you. Um, But I think he just observed that a lot of leaders are not telling the truth, that they are over-exaggerating their, their power. They're over-exaggerating how everybody has to deal with them. And, of course, he was dealing with the Persian emperor, empire. Um, and he just realized that maybe they're just arrogant enough to think that they can win no matter what, without preparation or even with preparation, but not excellent preparation, that kind of thing. So he prepared. He thought that he was able to do it. He had his generals that he trained in the same way. And, and they did conquer them. Now, I'm not saying that that was a good idea. But he had a tremendous amount of confidence to pull that off. And it is also because he had the confidence that the other side would give in faster than they otherwise would have. He, the other side's not going to give in to someone who's not confident. Well, that's Alexander. What about Mozart? I mentioned Mozart, too, in the thing. Where did Mozart's confidence come from? He had to listen to hundreds of critics tell him he uses too many notes. And, and all that criticism really didn't stop him from just producing a tremendous amount of music because it was the way he felt inside. I can produce music. I'm good at this. And he, did, he was. And we all think he was, or at least not everybody, but lots of people think that he was very good at it. And 
his confidence was justified. Now, let's talk about confidence. And, and again, it's a standard. He probably looked around at the other musicians at the time and realized that he had something that they didn't have and he had confidence that he could then add to the... He didn't probably assume that he was going to be considered Mozart, but he probably realized that he could add to the music of Vienna of the time in a way that was in excess of almost anyone that he met that was in music at the time. So let's talk about something much more mundane. A saleswoman's confidence. There are saleswomen who are just totally confident that they can sell you what they want to sell you. Whether you want it or not, or at least... You might not know you need it or want it, but by the end of the conversation, she's sure that you'll know that you want it and that you need it and you're going to get it. Now, people like that have a lot of confidence. And people say, their mothers must have given it to them or they got it some other way. But basically, again, it's a standard. They see that they have the verbal talents to be able to induce other people to buy things that they didn't really realize they wanted. And the longer they do it successfully, the more confident they're going to get. Now, they can just, if they run into people that it doesn't work on, if it's just a few, that's one thing. But if they start to lose their ability to talk people into things, their confidence drains out of them immediately. Uh, Because, again, they're seeing themselves as being above a standard. As soon as they see themselves below the standard, their confidence drains away. Same thing is true. For a classic story, which is like the high school quarterback, right? High school quarterback is somebody who's at the top of his game at age 16, 17. Um, the big man on campus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if he's not good enough to play college football, um, he can live on that high school quarterback confidence for maybe 10 years. By the end of his 20s, if he's not achieving something else, he begins to lose the confidence that he had when he was in high school. Anyone who's been to a high school reunion knows what I'm talking about. The people that were confident in high school aren't always the ones who are confident later. Some who were confident in high school are still confident 40 years later, 30 years later, but some have lost all their confidence. And why? Well, everybody was telling them that's what they're doing. You can say go to Hollywood uh, for actors and actresses being told that they're the most beautiful people that I've ever seen. And if they hear that over and over again, they get very confident about it until they're 35 or 40 or 40. If they're not, if they're living a wild life and, 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 and in a way bringing their beauty down, uh, their confidence starts to ebb along with everything else. It's because what was the standard? What were you told? What did you perceive correctly? Now, there are some who are very beautiful, who are told that they're beautiful, who don't ever believe it. They don't believe it and they don't get confidence because of that, they can be, they never end up being movie stars or anything like that. And then there are people who don't have it in the looks department, um, but become politicians and also think that they are always going to be the big man in the room, the one who everybody looks to, to influence them. And this happens because they see what the standard is. They see that they meet a lot of top people in the field and they think they're better than they are. Now, they may or they may not be better. That's actually a very interesting part of this. It doesn't really matter whether they're objectively better. They only have to perceive themselves as better because their perception is what causes their emotional reaction. So that's a few examples about, about confidence. Now, what, 
I, I mentioned before that there are patterns in our personality, that if we, if we analyze our, the patterns in our personality, we can live life well, confidently, even without knowing what the big picture uh, understanding of life is. What do I mean by patterns? Um, it's what's inherent in what we all do. So an example from geometry is a circle. So a circle, inside of a circle, there's a relationship between the circumference of the circle and the diameter of the circle. And the relationship between those two things is pi. So pi, 3.14159, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's always the same. Now, we, when we make a circle, we don't have to adjust the circumference and the diameter until it equals pi. If we've drawn a circle, we have created a relationship between the circumference of that object and its diameter that is exactly equal to pi. Now, that's the ideal, and maybe we've never actually drawn one perfectly. That's okay. But the concept, the concept is there, and that's what I mean by inherent. Pi, the relationship between the circumference and the diameter, is inherent in circles. And I think that there are exactly the same kind of inherent relationships in our emotions, in our mind, in the way that we do things, the patterns in our personality, I call them. Now, because I like Greek philosophy, uh, I'll, I'll mention that Plato talked about eternal ideas, things that were the concept, that were the basis of this world, that this world was sort of a bad copy of this perfect world of ideas. I don't have that idea, but I think that the idea of eternal ideas evolved over time, over the tw last 2,500 years, uh, to the idea of a concept. What's the concept? And the concept is like pi. You know, it, 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 it just describes clearly the relationship between two things that exist. So what are the parts of the patterns in our personality that make up what I call trust? Now, trust is one of our emotions. Um, it's very common. It's used for lots of different things. But when trust is at is aimed at yourself, when you trust in yourself, that trust, that emotion is what we call confidence. So it's trust aimed at yourself. And I'll talk about trust in general, and then I'll also talk about confidence as a personal thing. So trust in general has elements, just like the circumference and the diameter, it has elements. One is, it's the emotion, and it's caused by our perception of virtue. Wherever we per perceive virtue, we will trust something. So people think, well, that sounds very religious. You can trust things. Um, but I use it secularly across the entire board. You want to rob a bank. So you can go look for a bank robber. Now, if your perception is, is that he's excellent at robbing banks, you're going to hire him. And if you think he's a bumbler, you're not going to hire him. So you can have trust in a bank robber to do your job for you, exactly as you can have trust in almost anything else. You can have trust in a hitman, that he's good at it, he's going to get away with it, you're not going to end up in jail for having hired him, that kind of thing. And you, you, however you proceed, now you might not be right. You might not be right about either the hitman or the bank robber, but your perception is that they have strength, they have virtue, they're excellent at their job, they're going to get their way. And that's where you get your, your, your trust from in them. It's your perception of their virtue. Um, if somebody lied to you about their ability and you bought it, then your perception is going to be false and your trust will last until you figure out that that was a lie. But in the meantime, you're going to have trust. So 
Trust is the emotion caused by the perception of virtue. Virtue in this case is the sort of the ancient Greek idea um, that it's excellence in performing any task, excellence in thinking in this case. When it comes to confidence in yourself, it's excellence in living. Are you, are you good? Are you excellent at living life? Now, most people aren't going to say that. They're not going to say, I'm excellent at living life. There's all kinds of reasons. And, but the reason most people will not say that is because the standard is so high. It's almost a standard of perfection. Now, you cannot, perf- you can, you cannot compare anything to perfection. When you compare things, it has to be something else that's relative. So, if we want to be more confident in life, and almost everybody does, for good reason, we have to understand the standard and our perception. So, when we think about this from a personal point of view, we have a difficult time for two subtle reasons. One is, you have to perceive yourself and you don't know what virtue is. And so to perceive yourself as virtuous is a doubly difficult job to be done. And, but that, and that's what it takes in order to be confident. Now, some people do it without thinking. If you're, if you're listening to this, you're thinking about how can I be more confident, right? So, so um, there's a way, and I have an analogy. It's a different form of trust, but I think it helps explain where we go wrong in becoming confident ourselves. So another form of trust, which is extremely common and actually much simpler than our trust in ourselves, is our trust in God, whether God exists or not. Our trust in God is based upon the idea that he's perfect. He is, by definition, virtuous. That's, that's, what, you, that's what God is. God's virtuous. He's perfect. Um, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. And so uh, we trust him based on that. We perceive him as virtuous because everybody who talks about him says how good he is. Okay? Now, there are difficulties. There are difficulties because you can believe in that, but people's faith also gets shattered or at least gets wobbly under many different circumstances. And I'll talk about a couple of them now. Death, divorce, disease. Those three things often get in the way of faith. Now, why? Well, it all depends upon your idea about what amounts to God's virtue. If you think that God's virtue is such that because he loves you, he'll never let any of those things happen to you. He'll never let anything bad happen to you. If that's what your trust is based on, then you're going to end up in a situation where if any of those things happens to you, you're going to lose your confidence. You're going to lose your faith in the situation. You're going to lose your faith in God. Now, if you, on the other hand, think that death, divorce, and disease are all inscrutable parts of his plan, then it's not going to bother you when it happens because it it won't undercut your faith in him. On the other hand, if you think that death, divorce, and disease are a test of your strength and that you want to pass that test, then you'll be delighted with each of those things. And it will only strengthen your faith in God when he hands them to you. So it's all your perception of what he's like and what virtue amounts to that all those things are affecting 
your faith in God. Ironically, um, it would seem much more substantial to have faith in his personality rather than his existence. Because it doesn't do, it's, it's rather disturbing if you think that he both exists and is in charge and he's also a tyrant king. Because that's not what people want. That's, that doesn't create, you might have total faith in him, but you're still scared as hell for, for exactly those reasons um, in, in what's going on because you don't want someone in charge who's like that. So Jesus, as a philosopher, uh, stated something I thought which was a great metaphor to take care of that problem. He said, think of the best father that you know. My father is 70 times 7 better than that. Now, that's not omniscient. That's not perfect. That's just 70 times 7 better. But you can have a lot of faith if somebody is like that. Now, I use that analogy from religion to talk about individuals because it's the same idea. If you think you have to be perfect in order to have trust and confidence in yourself, then you'll never get there because you're not perfect. Nobody is. Um, And, well, there are some people who think they are. And, and, And the other element to that, too, is that there are experiences that make people feel that way. In the last century or so, because of modern medicine's advance, lots of people have had experiences of brushes with death, near-death experiences, as they call them. And some people have near-death experiences, and they are told by somebody on the other side that they are experiencing omniscience and, and, and that they are one with the whole knowledge of the universe and everything. And so then they feel that that's an experience of the divine. The irony is that when they come back, uh, they usually can't even remember what day it is, um, much less that they, that they have like the blueprint to the human body uh, in the, in the uh, omniscience that they gained. And if they did have any of that information, they could share it with everybody. But that's never shared. What's shared is the experience and the faith that that was something that they have confidence in, that they have trust in. So, to personal confidence. We have to figure out a subtle way to perceive ourselves in a way that we're above the standard. Above the standard. And what is the standard? The the standard is made up by society and it changes all the time. The the standard of behavior keeps shifting. Uh, You don't know what behavior you're going to do that's going to make you get canceled uh, nowadays because it'll keep shifting. And, And as a good example that there is no behavior that has a certain quality to it. All actions, in my opinion, are neutral and it's what you bring to it that causes it to have its value in your life and in your mind. Um, we just had a, a, a little event at the Academy Awards the other night, and the appreciation of this is across the entire spectrum of, from a tremendously virtuous action to a tremendously evil action, right? And everybody's arguing, what was this, great? Or it was in the middle? How bad was it? How good was it? Because people can't tell, given the details, because the details are all neutral. 
It's what was brought to it that caused the, the emotions and the experience for everybody. And the interesting thing about that is, if we can't know from our actions, which is what we've tried to base everything on, then we need to go inside our own minds and get to know them and understand what our motives are and what's going on in our mind and why, what's the standard for me to feel good about myself. And if you, you, you have to realize quickly that you can't only feel good about yourself if you're omniscient, omnipotent, whatever. Because that, this, is, this is not a standard to be reached, but in addition to that, it's really not a standard for anything and you can't compare it to anything. So, um, we look inside we say, how do I perceive myself clearly in order to get this confidence? And now we're talking about the kind of confidence that makes people great artists, great scientists, great doctors. I would say great politicians, but there's too few examples. Uh, and those kind of things, we need to see what's going on inside of ourselves. And that's a very difficult thing to do in its way, but it's also very easy if we just understand that the standard is quite low. If we say, what standard is required for me to be uh, able to eat in this society, for this society to allow me to eat enough to last my whole life? Well, almost everybody makes that standard, right? You can be be quite a criminal and still people are going to let you eat until the end of your life. So you can have confidence that you belong in the human race almost regardless of what your, your actions are. So that standard is low enough to say, I'm, I'm capable, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I'll be allowed to eat for my whole life. Well, we want a slightly higher standard than that, obviously, for other things. But the idea of these standards is just fascinating to me because we make them up ourselves, right? Or we hear them from other people. And because of the way we hear these standards and because of the way they're taught to us, and because we're all free will individuals who don't like to be told what to do, <laughs> we always try to get around the standards, right? So if the standard is, if you do this and this and this and this and this and this in your life, you will go to heaven. What does everybody do who believes that? Do they shoot for 10 times over the standard in order to be confident that they're going to succeed or do they dance right along the line the whole time, trying to get as much, try, trying to fool the situation as much as possible, right? And those people who do that clearly show that they don't have confidence or trust in the standard because they're trying to get around it. Now, it just shows one of the things that I think, you know, people spend a lot of time say, trying to tell everybody, don't lie, don't cheat. There's lots of ways of doing this. But who's ever explained that it's not in your self-interest? Almost everybody believes it's in your self-interest to lie and cheat if you can get away with it, right? But the fact is, if you ever lie or cheat in any competition, what have you just done? You've just admitted to yourself that you don't feel competitive, right? You don't feel that you can play by the rules and still win. So to the degree to which you lie and cheat, you're going to lose confidence in yourself. It has nothing to do with a religious idea or anything. It's just that's one of the patterns. Because it's all in your mind. And it reveals it very clearly. 
Because if you were confident that you were competitive, you wouldn't care so much about winning all the time. What you would care about is doing your best and seeing how it turned out this time, seeing how it turns out in the next game, see how it turns out in the next game. But if you feel lacking confidence in your, in your competitive abilities, you'll cheat and lie in order to win, in order to tell yourself, you see, I deserve to be confident. But by doing it that way, you undercut your own confidence even more than if you just didn't even play that game at all. I really wish that the politicians would kind of all learn that one. Um, that, that, that their confidence is, or their lack of confidence is totally on display to everybody when they lie and cheat. Gerrymandering, perfect example. So uh, I won't go into that idea, but if, if they really wanted us to have a democracy, we wouldn't have any gerrymandering at all. And if they, wanted us to, they want us to theoretically to have a democracy, but they also want to win, and therefore they feel that you have to do it this way because that's the way they can guarantee that they're going to win. Um, so, what do we spend a lot of time losing our confidence about besides lying and cheating? Well, we lose our confidence in lots of different ways. And it's all, also, again, a bunch of standards. We lose our confidence when we're in high school about dating, for example. You know, if you don't, if anybody ever says no to you, you think, oh, you know, I better never ask anybody again or something like that. And it takes a while for most people to get confident about dating. Um, and the reason is because you don't know what the standard is. The standard should be something like in baseball, you know. If you bat 400, you're a superstar. So if, if you ask 10 people out and four people say yes, you should say, that's pretty good. That's all right. Um, you know, you might not be a superstar. But, but still, each standard is there, and it's never... A, a perfect standard. And uh, if, you, if you have that analogy for life, that it's a little bit like a sports game, um, with a standard of, you know, say, 350 to 400, you're a superstar, then you'll realize why Babe Ruth is not remembered for his strikeouts. He's remembered for his home runs. But he had twice as many strikeouts as home runs. Twice as many. So, if you want, to, if you want to, to see life in a way that you can succeed at the game, having that kind of an idea, that kind of a standard, will make a big difference. Another area that we fail at tremendously is when we try to gain power. It's an extremely popular desire to pursue, to get power over other people, to have power in your workplace. It's not just the, the politicians that want to take over a country or want to take over another country um, or win in their country and then take over another country. It's not just that. There's so much power um, plays going on, even in, in married couples, et cetera, et cetera. It's always going on. And why? Because we feel that if we win in a power game, we're more important than the other person. I call this the importance of being important. It's sort of crucial to the way we feel about ourselves, and people, it, it, it's one of the underlying ways people try to be more confident in life. But it's also like lying and cheating. You don't really ever have any power over anybody else. Any two-year-old can say no to you, and does. And 
And any adult can say no to anytime they want to. Now, there will be consequences. But you, don't, you only are manipulating their emotions. Now, you can be very effective manipulating other people's emotions. No question about it. But the, the underlying hope, the underlying desire is to have power over other people in a way where they really just do what you say, that you're making all their decisions for them. And the fact is, everyone makes their own decisions all the time, whether we like it or not. That's the way it is. And so you, it's just a folly to pursue this power delusion. And uh, it's one of the things I said, you know, power the, the old uh, saying is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I think power reveals corruption and absolute power reveals all your corruption. So if you don't want everyone to know what your dream life is like, which almost nobody would like anybody to know, <laughs> but if you don't want that, you should stay away from power and you should certainly stay away from absolute power. Tsarina Anna in, in Russia um, had absolute power. And uh, when one of her lovers, uh, when she was uh, 60 or so, uh, she found, he found out that he had uh, had an affair with somebody else. Her revenge on him was that she built an ice castle on the Neva River in Leningrad. And she had him marry an old hag. And they had a big ceremony and then put him in the ice castle for their honeymoon. That was her revenge. Now, that's the kind of thing where power shows everything that's going on in your head. That you really don't want, I mean, you can dream that. And lots of people might dream that. But, you know, you really don't want everyone to know that. Speaking of not wanting everyone to know that, you know, a lot of people in there, in, in the centuries past, and just one of the pieces of gossip everyone talks about is how nice it would be if I could just read everybody else's mind, right? It'd be so great to read other people's minds. Well, fortunately, that, that desire should die within the next 20 or 30 years thanks to the internet. Because the internet shows us everything everybody is thinking all the time about everything. And if you want to spend time in those minds, you know, in the chat rooms and stuff like that, if you want to spend your time in there or with their conspiracy theories and everything, you know, you need to be entertained in some other way. (laughs) Because that's what a lot of people are thinking. Um, And therefore, maybe reading minds isn't the best thing, uh, the best pursuit of the use of your time anyway. But going back to the power, um, the pow- going for power is just a delusion. It's a very interesting one. Um, and as I said, it's the importance of being important. It's, you, you've got to feel better about yourself because you're more important than the other people. The terrible part about that, or one of the terrible parts about that is, if you're feeling worse and worse and worse for something that happened to you, you lost your job, the pandemic is driving you crazy, that kind of thing, you have to make everyone around you in your life feel worse so that you can retain your importance, so that you can stay where you are in the hierarchy. And this is where cruelty probably comes from in life, is that you are in a situation, you feel you're here in the hierarchy, you get knocked down, you have to knock everybody else down a little bit lower in order, in order for you to keep up your, your delusion uh, that you're doing well. Ironically, something that Again, um, it's pushed or or presented as a great idea by religions, but they don't put it in your self-interest. And it's, again, in your self-interest totally uh, to get people to trust you. Now, what happened? I define trust as the emotion caused by the perception of virtue. So if you persuade people to trust you, or if you just live your life in a way that people will trust you, 
What does that mean? It means they see you as virtuous. They see you as strong and excellent. That's going to increase your confidence because you're already confident that you're doing this, behaving in a way that they're going to trust you. And this is one way that some of the most outstanding trustworthy individuals that with a great deal of confidence eventually built up their confidence is because they lived in a way that other people could trust them in a deep way. You could trust somebody in a fairly superficial way, like you can trust uh, one of the superstars to, to perform, like, um, you know, great basketball player that he's going to score enough points that your team is going to win, that kind of thing. You can trust that. But to trust them in life, you know, that they will... They will they have your best interests at start, that they're really a friend of yours looking out for your happiness. When you begin to trust somebody like that, you, of course, enjoy that. But the person who's being trusted, they get an addition to their own confidence, which they already must have some of in order to provoke the trust in you. You can pretend to create trust, or you can ask people to trust me. You know, there's lots of politicians who say, trust me, just trust me, you know. Usually when someone says, just trust me, that's the last thing you're going to do is trust them. That's, that's the signal that you can't trust the person. People who are trustworthy usually don't say, trust me. They just live in a way that you can trust. So um, it's a valuable thing. And it's very interesting to me because this pursuit of trust or living in a way that people will trust you is for your, for your own self-interest. I mean, it really increases your own happiness, your own confidence a tremendous amount. Um, and I'll compare it to a rhyming word, lust. Lots of people want to inspire lust in other people for them instead of trust. And if you compare the two, sure, if you can talk someone into lusting for you, you get something out of it. But you get much more out of it if someone trusts you. And, and if you ask anybody near the end of their life, you know, what was more important? You know, somebody trusting them, some kindness that was done to them. Yeah, they had some adventures that were lots of fun. But these things are far more important, and there's no one's requiring them to say that. That's not universal, but nearly universal reaction because inspiring trust in somebody else is even more fun and even more enjoyable to you than inspiring lust in somebody else. So if you, you know, now on the other hand, you can't, you don't have to just do one or the other. You can do both. And if you ever do inspire trust and lust in the same person usually get married. Right? So, so that's basically, you know, uh, another idea that when the patterns in our personalities are clear, the patterns in our emotions are clear, we can see what's in our self-interest in a way that's very hard to see when it's obfuscated by a whole bunch of other ideas that, that are not part of the pattern, but are part of our belief systems about what's going on from the metaphysical reality, which is why I say, you know, most of these patterns, if you see them and see them clearly, you're going to behave in a way that you're not going to get kicked out of almost any religion uh, because you're going to behave in a way in your own self-interest, which is generally considered virtuous. Um, there's one, one that's not so, uh, virtu- not so clear. Uh, there's, no, there's no complete overlap. Uh, obedience is considered a virtue um, by most people. When they're telling you something, you have to obey Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And obedience is you know, it's probably a vice. Yeah, you know, we're free will individuals, and the pattern is is that we're all going to make our own decisions. And so, obeying something without knowing why, without thinking, thoughtless obedience, is probably undercutting your own happiness. 
Now, voluntary cooperation between individuals, that probably increases their happiness. It's a totally different thing. So, um, one of the ideas that makes this clear about how you can be confident yourself, besides the fact that you can live in a way that inspires trust in others, you have to see yourself. The subtlety of perceiving yourself in a way which is virtuous requires a couple things. One, you have to know what the standard is. So let me use another analogy. We think of good and evil, or virtue and vice, um, as opposites. The ancient Greeks thought of them as opposites. Almost everybody thought of them as opposites. I don't really think they're opposites. I think the better way to describe them is uh, by analogy. It's the same thing as hot and cold. Of course, you'd say hot and cold. They're opposites, right? But not really. Hot and cold are relative degrees of one thing, which is the internal temperature of an object, right? So what's the temperature of an object? And we know it goes all the way down to absolute zero. And, you know, in the range that we're used to, it's usually between zero degrees centigrade, uh, zero degrees Fahrenheit and uh, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's our range. And we define what's hot and cold based upon where we are. We're at 98.6 degrees. So we're sitting, there's an objective standard, right? And we're sitting on that objective standard at 98.6 degrees. Well, Death Valley would not be hot if our body temperatures were 150 degrees, right? And so it's all a matter of where do you stand and where do you look? And when you look up, you see hot. And when you look down, you see cold. I think good and evil, virtue and vice are almost exactly the same thing. There's an objective standard, which is these patterns in our personalities that I'm talking about. There's an objective standard about how to live life well. Um, and wherever you are, you're there, and what, what's above you looks virtuous, and what's below you looks uh, vicious or evil. And everybody's quick to say that's evil. You know? People aren't as, 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 as quick to say that's divine because it's somebody else. But it was, they don't want to you know, give something away like that to somebody else, usually. So, uh, but they're very eager to, to say that somebody's evil. Um, and this just shows how we're trying hard to keep our place in the hierarchy uh, in our own minds. The hierarchy doesn't have to exist. It's just mentally that we want to see ourselves in that hierarchy. So we're in this situation. Good and evil aren't really objective things. They are relative to something objective. That objective thing is how well do you live life? How well do you, do you follow the patterns in your personality uh, to good effect? And, you know, it's, it's, it's very tough because we've been trained and we all think in terms of actions all the time. But really, our entire life is, is in our own head, is in our own minds. And so we, we have to rearrange that thought if we're going to succeed at becoming more confident. So, we're in a situation where we're now inside of our heads and we're trying to see ourselves as virtuous. We have an idea that there's a standard. We don't know exactly what the standard is. The next part of the subtlety involved, how do you see yourself? How do you perceive yourself? What do you see when you see yourself? Do you see anything and how clearly do you see yourself? Well, we know and go back to the example of the Academy Awards, we know that everybody, there's a fact, and everybody sees it differently. And you see yourself differently day to day, depending on your mood. 
You see whether you're good or bad and whether you're, whether you're uh, really going to be successful. You feel you're going to be really successful or you feel, oh, I'm miserable. It's impossible for me to ever get anywhere in life. Um, my daughter uh, said one time, fifth grade, she was in fifth grade, and uh, I came into her room and I said, did you get your uh, homework done? And she said, um, yes, I did. And I said, you know, you are not very good at lying. And she paused for a second. She says, I know, Papa. She said, I'm a terrible liar. I'm not going to get anywhere in this world. <laughs> I was really happy that she'd figured that out at an early age. <laughs> so um, if, you, if you see what is needed by other people, then you have to decide what you're going to accomplish, you know, because what, what are you going to decide to do? If you just want to be president of the United States, you know what that path is like, at least people who are in their 60s and have watched so many people trod that way. You know what that is. You know what it's like to get to, uh, to succeed in Hollywood for almost everybody. Maybe not everybody, but almost everybody. Um, and so it's kind of always ironic when somebody says, oh, you know what they made me do? <laughs> and like, everybody kind of knew that. Um, were you not paying attention? So it's, uh, it's something that you then choose how am I going to live my life? How am I going to fit in with society in a way that I can still keep eating, as I said earlier on? You know, almost everybody can keep eating. So how do you do it in a way that you can keep eating? Well, to go back to perceiving yourself. There's all kinds of tricks, and, 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 and people will give you lots of advice about how to see yourself, but it's a lot easier than that. You just recognize that you're, you don't know yourself completely. Nobody else does. You don't know anybody else completely. And, and so you're working with imperfect information. When you're working with imperfect information, what's a good way to look at it? So that's another one of my ideas. I call it the imagination's horizon. So wherever you are in life, you look out in front of you, and you, you kind of imagine to yourself where you want to be. Now, you don't have to answer the question that they ask when, you, when you're being recruited to a, a job or anything like that. How do you see yourself in five years? You know? that's a little ridiculous. But it is based upon the fact that we are all looking ahead all the time, saying, what do I want to desire next? What do I want to do next? How is this relationship working out? How is this one going downhill? This one's going uphill, that one's going down, et cetera, et cetera. And you're always thinking about all these things and you're always pushing out. Right? You're always pushing out. So what do we do about that? Well, we have this, in my opinion, we have this horizon for our imagination. We can see as far as we feel tall, in a, in a way, mentally. And the taller you feel, or the more confident that you feel, the further out your horizon is. Now, the great irony of that is that the more accomplished people are the ones who are going to feel that they're not living up to their potential. They're the ones who are complaining. If you, if you criticize society in some way and say people aren't being honest enough on their taxes, who is it that feels bad they're not being honest enough on their taxes? All the people who are honest on their taxes. The people who are not honest on their taxes don't care at all. They, they know that they're not, and they, they, they plan on continuing. It's the people who are criticized, who usually are near the top of the game, that take criticism to heart because they're the ones who are trying to achieve this. It's very ironic. There's a lot of ir ir ironies about human life. That's just another one. Because 
They're the ones who can see, I could be just a little bit more honest about this, or I could just be a little bit better at this. So when someone complains about it, they're going to see it. They're going to say, you're right, I could be better. Which means that the people near the top are the ones who, uh, near the top in terms of accomplishments in human culture, human history, and so on, that have had the biggest impact, probably have thought to themselves more often than almost anybody else, I'm not good enough, or I'm not successful enough, or I didn't accomplish enough. I'm Leonardo da Vinci, but I, I only finished 15 paintings, you know? Could have done 17, could have done 25, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and the person who doesn't do any paintings doesn't ever think, I, I should have done more paintings. So, so it's a very interesting thing, phenomenon. That's why I call it the imagination's horizon. The further you go with your imagination, the more you're going to see out where you should go next. And so the further your horizon is, the further your imagination of who you could be is from where you are, is a good sign, a sign that you're doing very well in life. It's, it should be the standard that says to you, you're doing well. You should be confident because you, you can see all that f- much further. And the other irony about this is if your imagination is your friend, that's how it will work. If you turn your imagination into an enemy, it's a conscience. That's what a conscience is. It's your imagination beating up on you for not being good enough. Now, there's lots of reasons why people have tried to instill consciences in human beings over the centuries. But it doesn't make anybody better to be yelled at all the time. We kind of know that. And to be yelled at internally is even worse. And it also implies that somehow being virtuous, being confident, being loving is not in your self-interest. It's in your self-interest. You don't need somebody to beat up on you for this. You just in your pursuit of happiness, it's kind of obvious when you see it outside of the fog of everything else around it. So that's the imagination's horizon idea. And, and if you just take one idea out of this lecture, it would be don't make your imagination your enemy. It's just, if he is your enemy now or if she is your enemy now, stop it. Say, hey, Let's be frenemies for a while, (laughs) and then we can be friends. Let's just move from being enemies to frenemies and then to friends. Because your imagination is there always showing you what you can think of next. What can I do next? What can I do next? And anybody, no matter how accomplished they are, once they finish that accomplishment, they want to move on to the next thing. Now, I interview authors for the Commonwealth Club all the time. You know, most of the time, the book I'm talking to them about is the one they finished two years ago, right? And they're working on something else. And so they have to get back in the, the frame of mind of the book that, they're, that they wrote two years ago because they're almost all moving on to the next thing, and that's what they're focused on um, while we're all reading the books that they wrote two years ago because it takes a while to get through the publishing thing. And that's, that's a great way for life to be lived. There's that, and and uh, so anyway, that's the imagination's horizon. Um, and the other element to this is in a way, it's like, you know, when, you, when you're friends with your imagination like that, you're kind of always swimming upstream, right? Because you're swimming against the whole cultural current. You're swimming upstream. No problem at all. Because you have an imagination to take you there. And you know, it just gives you more strength as you swim upstream. It's invigorating. There's nice views. You see everybody else going in the other direction. That gives you more confidence. If, if you believe Mark Twain, when Mark Twain said, <clears throat> whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to reform. 
So swimming upstream, you just swim upstream. It's invigorating. I said the view is nice, um, and you'll stay stronger and stronger every bit of the way that you go. So that's, that's uh, some of my ideas, certainly not all of them, of how you can be more confident. It's really all about the perception of what the standard is and the perception of yourself as virtuous and understanding what virtue is in those ideas. It takes some thinking, uh, but it doesn't take very difficult thinking. It just, you just have to think in a way which our society has almost never thought because we all have different ideas about this and just testing out and see whether that works a little bit better. But the bottom line, of course, is that it's really in your self-interest. If you, anything that's not stated in the way that it's in your self-interest is not paying attention to the fact that we're all free will individuals pursuing happiness, trying to be happier. And the, the people who feel happiness is not a good goal because somehow it's disreputable to try to be happy. And I'm not talking about frivolous happiness. Now, frivolous happiness is also okay. But deep, profound happiness is what's, what really we, we like. Um, but it's not a frivolous goal at, at, at any point in the pursuit of happiness. If it was, then nirvana and enlightenment and heaven would all be described as a miserable place to go to. And it's not. They're not. Because substantially we know that this is what it is. We have some difficulty because some people pursue desires which are miserable, make other people miserable. You know, all the crimes that human beings commit, that kind of stuff on each other. But they're still pursuing their happiness in doing that. And, and what they need more than anything else is to understand where the weakness in their theory is, in their philosophy of life. That that's a pursuit. It's a very simple thing like, well, you, you maybe you've never had a really good friend. And so you think everybody's an object and you treat everybody as an object. But if you had a really good friend, the pleasure of that would eliminate your interest in all the other things immediately. Not immediately. But you can, you can change your habits in the pursuit of happiness. When you, some people think, well, if, I, if you add enough punishment on top of what they're doing, they'll stop. But actually, if they have enough pleasure that's greater than what they're pursuing, they're going to change much more, much more quickly. So, good luck with your confidence. Um, some people think it's a zero-sum game. No. If everybody in the world was 10 times as confident as they are now, we'd all be much better off. It's not a competition. So, um, that's it. I'll see there's a, there's a question in here, and if anybody has a question here. A uh, question from George Steffner. Is the lack of confidence typically from uncertainty? Would the most confident people accept uncertainty, be confident they can deal with it? Yes. Okay, well, so uh, there's a uh, physicist here from, from uh, his name is escaping me right now. But uh, he, he said the problem with uncertainty um, is that when you're certain about things, that you, you feel confident that you know what you're doing. But if you're certain that you have the answers, you clearly <laughs> are making a mistake. And therefore, living with uncertainty is just as easy, if not easier, than living with certainty. Living with certainty, you know you're lying to yourself. So, so it seems to me that that's part of the process. Living with knowing that you never know yourself perfectly. How are you ever going to know all the details about yourself? And if you don't, how can you expect anybody else to? 
know everything about you because you're, you're, you're much more complex than that. They can know the basics of your personality and deal with it. Um, you know, one of the things that, that develops trust, of course, is if you meet somebody and you think that person, if I spend more time with them, is going to make me a happier person. Now, that might be a future friend. It may be a future spouse. Something about their personality makes you think that I'm going to be happier with that person. Now, a lot of people think, well, that's because they're cheerful or it's this. No, it, it, that's true for some people. For some people, they're looking for someone who's hurt, who wants to be hurt, and, and they, because they're sadomasochistic, and they want somebody that is going to be in pain and enjoy it in order for them to be happier in the situation. So it's much more complex than what people think, uh, what attracts people to each other. But, but you, you develop, in a, and usually you do this in, in the first five or ten seconds or a minute of meeting somebody, if you see that's the kind of person that's going to make me a happier person if I spend more time with them. And as I said, their personality might be all over the, the, the whole range of human personalities. It depends on your personality and your desires as to whether that's going to prove to be enjoyable for you. Um, I'm not suggesting any of those uh, alternative ways of pursuing happiness. But that pattern holds up. The patterns that hold up hold up all the way across the board no matter how people are doing it. Um, and not just for the good people or not just for the bad people. Yeah, go ahead. It does take two to tango. Yes, and if you meet somebody who's really good at tangoing, and you are too, immediately you think, that's going to be more fun you know, for me, right? Because you think, I, 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 would, I like tango so much. I mean, I'm talking about the dance itself. I like tango so much. It's such a big part of my life that I really can't see being with somebody else as a partner that doesn't like to tango. There are people that take tango that far. Uh, question, why do women have such overly high standards before they feel confident and competent? Great question. So, mostly, this is social conditioning, right? I mean, we all know that. Women have been conditioned for a long time to please other people. Why? Because the men were in charge. Why was that? They were bigger doesn't make any difference anymore. It's about time we get rid of that, right? But, but why is it that people have felt that way? I go back to my idea of the importance of being important. Yeah, people think all men have got it made, but most men are under the thumb of some other man, right? Or now under the thumb of a woman, too. And uh, they want to feel more important than the people around them. Why is it that a relatively good man or woman, gets fired from their job after 10 years, didn't know it was coming, all of a sudden, very furious, comes home, first time beats their spouse, first time yells and screams at their children. Why? Why does that happen? That's a very common pattern. It happens because they just got knocked down in the hierarchy. They have to knock down the people around them immediately in order to keep their confidence that they are still in the same place in their hierarchy. It's very unfortunate. It's very unconscious. Maybe if we get more conscious about this, it won't happen so often, but this is just the, one of the patterns. So now we talk about 100,000 years of human history. They, they had an interesting uh, speaker the other day talking about um, how different cultures have split off, and they said that, he, he said that there's evidence that cultures that adopted the plow early on in farming 
have more divide between male and female roles than ones whose land does not allow the plow to be that good because the plow required much more upper body strength and therefore caused the division of labor between the men and the women. And, and because the men then were, again, stronger again because of the plowing that they did, that those cultures ended up with a bigger split between the male and female roles, uh, the females being more subordinate. Um, now, how that holds up, I don't know, but it was an interesting idea. Um, it's interesting because, you know, in general, we know that life has been physically difficult to, for survival for a lot of time. And so the advantage, physical advantage that males have has, has helped them dominate from other points of view, right? Um, but in any case, you know, we can reverse this in the future. You know, you could say women could say, all get together and, and, uh, and decide what it is that you want the men to do and, and trick them into doing it. Because we know you're smarter. You know, that, 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 I mean, just joking, but the college, college uh, you know, people thought that women couldn't be educated just uh, 150 years ago. I mean, Plato uh, thought women should be educated. Thomas More thought it, women could be educated, and another 25 people did over the 5,000 years. But it wasn't until the 19th century when that got started in the 20th century, just not only said they can be educated, but they're better at this than, than the men are. The same thing with all races, you know. It, it, an attempt to not educate a mind is an attempt to keep them in a lower position, obviously. Now, because of that social conditioning, and it's, you know, these things don't disappear. Cultures don't disappear. Cultural ideas don't disappear overnight. Not only overnight, even centuries. But that social conditioning has a lot of women always uncomfortable when they're displeasing somebody. And, and that's why I think that there's more of a tendency to do that. There's lots of women who have gotten out of this you know, and, and, and make very great leaders as a result. But you cannot ever please everyone. Nobody can. Men, women, children, nobody can please everybody. Right? And so... Since, since nobody can ever please everybody, it shouldn't be a goal. Should, the goal should be, let's see how much voluntary cooperation, how much we can accomplish. And if somebody is going to be complaining the whole time about it, that's, that's, that's their problem. We're not going to, you know, if you wanted to please everybody and you, you listen, as I said before, you, you read the chat room about all the different things. Everybody's telling you to do absolutely opposite things and they're absolutely furious about it and telling you to do this or that, or the other thing. You have to decide who you're not going to please. You know? and, and, uh, and that's pretty easy, I think. Um, anybody that's, that's interested in an idea, it's pretty easy to tell um, who to please. Um, another question. Wouldn't it be better accepting the whole earth matters more to God than just us? That might be contrary to Hebrew scriptures, but I'm not totally confident in any scriptures. Well, um, yeah, there's not... It, it, George is, takes me to another angle. You know, that's a good, good question. I'm going to take it from another angle. You know, people say, how can you discuss ideas and say that idea is left over from, uh, from a different cultural context, from a different religious idea, and that really isn't in our interest? Our, our self-interest is clear from another point of view, and, and it actually is what that was trying to accomplish, but it didn't ever accomplish it. How can you do that? Well, you never can do something like that if you think that all of those books 
All those scriptures, all the religious ideas were created by God and therefore are divine and know exactly what they're doing and there's no way to do it. But if, you, if that's your standard, you'd be an absolute fool. I mean, there are a lot of absolute fools out there. But you'd be an absolute fool to disagree with any of it. But if you think of it as a bunch of people from 5,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago, all of whom are really quite admirable to make an attempt at all in the area. But they all made that attempt and they missed some things. It's like literary theory. You know, you see a great novel, you love that novel, and then you, you kind of analyze it and you see where it could have been better. And to me, maybe we end on this, this is a big, big topic about being confident about such things. If you were the inventors of the television and you saw that millions and millions and millions of people were using your television and enjoying your television, et cetera, et cetera, and nobody ever said anything to you like, thank you for making television possible. Well, you know what? That's, that's really all right if you were the inventor of the television, as long as the people are enjoying it. And I think that that... You have to have confidence about what's going on from a metaphysical point of view. I think you should feel whether or not the universe was created, whether or not our planet was created for our benefit, whether or not the animals were and everything. The idea of enjoying what was created has to please anyone who did it, regardless of whether you pay any attention to them at all. Right? And, and if you, and actually, gee, what a, time, to go, time to go? Yeah. Oh, one more question? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to do this first and then go back to where I was. What would you say about Putin, Putin based on this theory? Well, I would say two, two small things. Russia, for the last 350 years, has wanted to be part of Europe ever since uh, Peter the Great founded uh, St. Petersburg and and, and tried to create it into a European capital. And lots and lots of times they have presented themselves as almost like the little youngest brother in a family saying, how come you don't trust us? How come you don't, you know, how come we're not part of you? Look at what we did in the 19th century. You know, we took French ballet and we made it better. We took uh, the novel and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky made it better. We made beautiful music with Rachmaninoff and et cetera, et cetera. Why can't you consider us Europeans? And I, I feel, just as it did with Japan um, in the, from the 1850s till the 1930s, you know, we, for one reason or another, almost all not good reasons, we don't accept that part of that culture and say, yeah, you're equal to us or you're part of us. And it's all about this importance of being important too. And so... Everyone is responsible for their own decisions, including Putin and and the Russian leaders. But we've created a situation to make them feel miserable about themselves. And when you feel miserable about yourself, you strike out to try to make yourself more important. It's just what I explained. I think we've got to get smart about this. If we want to have a culture for the whole civilization, say everybody's contributed something. All the African civilizations have contributed something to our future human culture. Asian ones, Latin America, everybody contributes something. Everybody has something. Now, let's not argue about whether there's three novels from each place or whatever. Just let's enjoy what everybody else has come up with 
and have a human civilization. I understand that sounds ridiculous, but that's, you know, it's it sort of, you know, you know what we need? We need some aliens to come here. Maybe that's why that's so popular. We need some aliens to come here and that want to eat us all so that we have to f- work together to fight against them. Um, that's about the only thing that unites us. But we should be smart enough uh, to do it without that. Um, and, and to go, so that's that Putin question. To go back to the, to the final thing about, about the inventor of the television. Just think about it. If you were creative enough to do anything like what people say was done, you're not going to care about what each individual, and just like anybody who gives a lecture can't care what everybody says in the chat room. You don't care. You, can't, you can care about them as people, but you can't care about their opinion, or you'd be miserable, and who would want to do the job in the first place? You have to be smarter than that. So I think it's much more important to have confidence in your own personality than anything else for, for life. But you should at least have confidence that if there was somebody that made this, he doesn't care what you feel about him and what you do about him. And you could be smart enough to thank him and you could be smart enough to enjoy what happened or what she did or what it did or whether it was all an accident. You can't, we can't quite figure it out. And that's all right. But we can figure out what the patterns in our personality are. Right? And if we become more confident and use those patterns more intelligently, Whoever gave them to us, if anybody did, would have to be happier about it. So you can't make them upset about it. So I think we're perfectly safe. And I think it's much better to have faith in that the personality of anybody who did it, if anybody did, um, is at least superior to our personalities than, than to be worried all the time that he's inert, a jerk or a tyrant king or something like that. I can understand why the people did that 4,000 years ago. It doesn't make any sense to do it now. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.